The book of Acts is undoubtedly uh, my favorite uh, book in the Bible. Uh, mostly, well, a lot of you guys know that. Um, because it focuses more on uh, the life of the church, the power, the growth, the development. We've seen trials and victories. And so I like that. We've been in this series for about, uh, this is the fourth week, closing it out. And we've been talking about starting fresh in line because this is really our fourth Sunday being in this um, new space. Uh, as we close out, I'm going to be focusing on Acts chapter 17. And we're actually going to be in the entirety of the chapter. And so Acts 16, 17, and 18, it records uh, Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, this second uh, journey was a fresh moment for Paul. Um, it's after Paul and um, Barnabas, uh, they went their separate ways in ministry. Now, we won't focus too much on what led uh, uh, to the separation but I want you to see a map of the second missionary journey uh, by Paul and Silas. And I'm going to give you a quick overview of this. So if you look at this first map, uh, there it is. So you guys can see, good. Now, and the reason why I say fresh start, you have to understand this. Now, we often give Paul all the credit for um, the first missionary journey, the second missionary journey. But saying it's Paul's missionary journey is no different from saying um, Emerge is my church. Um, it's, you know, taking ownership of that. But truth of the matter is, um, the first missionary journey, it was Barnabas who was actually the team leader. And to understand the story, you have to go back. Um, in Acts 4 and verse 36, uh, somewhere around there, it tells us that Barnabas was born in Cyprus, um, but now he's in Jerusalem. If you know the story, Acts 2, the power came down. So he's in Jerusalem, and he's most likely staying with his cousin, um, John Mark. Now, what we also find is that Barnabas, he has some land in Jerusalem. He sold his land, and he gives the proceeds to the apostles so they can give it to the church. That's what's taking place. Then we get to around about Acts chapter 9, which is where Saul, Paul, gets saved. He gets saved, but no one really believes that he's saved. And so Barnabas, he befriends Paul, and he introduces him to the church in Jerusalem. That's in Acts chapter 9. Now we get over into Acts 11. Acts 11, around about verse 20. Uh, the disciples, or the apostles at that point, they send a few men from Cyprus and Cyrene to go to Antioch. In Antioch, there are Greeks, and they're sending them there to preach to the Greeks. Um, of course, I mentioned earlier that Barnabas is from Cyprus, but he's not there yet. He's still in Jerusalem. And now these Greeks are getting saved, converting to Christianity. The church is growing, and they said, let's send Barnabas to, Greek, to, um, to, uh, to, to the Greek in Antioch. And uh, That's around verse 22 of chapter 11. But what happens is that Barnabas takes a detour in run about verse 25. In verse 25, Barnabas says, let me go to Tarsus, which is where Paul is at this point. Let me go to Tarsus. I'm going to grab Paul and John Mark, and I'm going to take them with me to Antioch. Goes to Antioch. He stays there for a year, and they're teaching the people. Now we're in Acts 13. So you got to read the book of Acts to get all this picture. Acts 13 starts off by saying that while they're praying... The apostles said, separate to me um, Barnabas and Paul for the work in which I've called them to. 
At this point, the apostles, they're sending um, Barnabas and Paul now for them to go to, to, to uh, Cyprus. So they're in, at this point still in Antioch for, for this year, and they're making their way to Cyprus. They get to Cyprus, and now they're making their way to where you see it says uh, Patara. But in that region, it's actually, um, you find uh, Perga uh, and Pamphylia, which is where John Mark leaves them. John Mark leaves them, and he goes back to Jerusalem. Goes to Jerusalem, and now, after this missionary journey, um, they, the guys, uh, Barnabas and Paul, they go back to uh, Jerusalem. So now they're back there. Mission trip is over. They're back. Now they're in, in, in Jerusalem. At this point, the apostles say, I'm going to send you guys back on the mission field. This is where Paul says, nope, there's no way I'm going with John Mark. It's not happening. Because remember, John Mark left them. He went home. And so Barnabas is like, no, John Mark is going with us because that's his cousin. And so there's have the split. So what ended up happening at this point is that uh, Barnabas takes John Mark and he goes back to Cyprus where he's from. And then Paul and, and Silas, they go to Tarsus. Remember the story? This is where Barnabas grabbed Paul from. You guys with me so far? I know it's a lot of these little things, but I want you to understand what's going on here. So, so this is what happens at this point. So now Paul and Silas they're journeying from Derby, then Lystra, which is where they met Timothy. You guys know Timothy? Okay, we're going to read some of this in a moment. So Timothy joined Paul and Silas in spreading the gospel. But you have to understand that Luke is the one that's writing all of this. I was, when I was preparing this, I said to my wife, I said, I wonder what would have happened if Luke had stayed with Barnabas instead of Paul, you know, just something to think about. Because, you know, all this that we have here is because of what Luke is writing. But if Luke had stayed with Barnabas, the story probably would have looked so much different. Because at first, it was John Mark. So all this is going on, Luke is with them the whole time. But he's taking note, traveling in. And if you read through, you'll see where he changed the language from them to us. The first thing that Paul and Silas did, which is why I talk about this restarting or starting fresh, is that they determined to revisit all the churches that were established during the first missionary journey. Now do you see what's a restart? Because they could have easily gone to different places, but instead they revisited all the first places. So Paul's mission was to get the rest of the world to understand the importance of having a personal relationship with Jesus. So he's traveling the world explaining and expressing the importance of having faith in Jesus. Acts 17 tells us that along his travels, he comes to the city of Athens, Greece, and it was a pagan city at this time in the first century. Now, this was the Greek or Roman period, so they are polytheistic. They worship many gods. Now, they had over 300 uh, statues and, and temples, and they devoted this to the mythological gods. But the primary goddess was Athena. Now, you probably know this Athena. You know that, you know that Athena? Okay. But I'm not talking about her. I'm talking about this Athena. 
She was the goddess of war, wisdom, and protection. So they built a temple to honor her in Athens, and it's known as the Parthenon, which is a place of worship. So that place of worship, as you can see, it's in that middle section with all those um, pillars coming down. This is the city in Greece where Paul enters to share the gospel of Jesus, a town filled with polytheism. Now, I'm sure you're probably bored with all this history. So I'm going to read through the text to give you an understanding of what took place in Acts 17. Verse 1, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. I want you to, to hold that word, reason. You're going to hear it a lot. Explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of them leading women, joined Paul and Silas. Now, I'm not sure if this is where they get Jason's name from, but verse 5. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So they took money. That's what they meant by take security. Uh, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Uh, these were more fair-minded uh, than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. See, they're troublemakers. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, and they departed. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be uh, a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. 
for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent uh, their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and, and all things. And he, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might find growth um, for him and to find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and breathe, which is what we see in the, New Testament, in the King James Version. You don't see that here. Have our being also, some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Erephagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And that's a mouthful, and you're like, I have no clue what you just said. Paul and the team, talking about Silas and Timothy, they traveled to Thessalonica, then Berea. But the story is centered where? In Greece. Story centered in Athens, Greece. Greece was considered the intellectual center of the known world at this time. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, they all lived there. In fact, in 387 BC, Plato established the first institution of higher learning in Athens, and it's called, very creative, the Academy of Athens. Um, Aristotle actually studied at this same um, academy for 20 years before um, establishing his school um, in Lyceum. So it's an intellectual city. In Acts 17, verse 16, we're told that Paul's spirit was provoked. He's annoyed. Uh, he's beyond annoyed, actually, because he sees the city was given over to idolatry. When people worship idols, there's always an underlying problem. Have you ever noticed that? Like many, like many of us who mask our pain, our daily routine changes. For some, you might overeat. Maybe you bite your nails. Have you seen those guys bite their nails because they're stressed out with an exam? 
during an interview, like no nails left, right? Or maybe you become a little withdrawn. Maybe you start to um, feed certain addictions that you've been trying to avoid. These things are all symptomatic of a much deeper problem. Like many people living in our society, the fundamental problem for the people of Athens is that they didn't have a relationship with Jesus. This is why uh, the Parthenon was constructed, this temple for the goddess of um, Athena, and it is in the highest hills, Acropolis. I think all the movies probably got all these names from the Bible. The people worship these idols. Paul is grieved by what he sees. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we grieved by the lost souls that we see? People who don't have a relationship with Jesus, are we grieved when we see them? Do we have this concern when we see them in the workplace or classrooms? Because we must first have a heart for the people if we desire to see the results when we share the love of Christ. Our text says that when Paul went to a city, he reasoned with the people as was his custom. So he never missed an opportunity to have dialogue. But it says that he started in the synagogue because he was Jewish. So he wanted to stop and, uh, and talk to the Jewish brothers and sisters. Although he's called to the Gentiles, he always stopped and talked to the Jews first. But we learned something interesting in verse 17. It says, therefore, Acts 17, 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers. So you're seeing that this is a mixed group. We have both Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. So what we're seeing is that this mixed congregation exists because they did not have a personal relationship with Jesus. This tells us that it's possible to worship with people who don't know what it means to have their sins forgiven. I'd be sitting here with people who have never experienced that. I know you're confident about other things in their lives, but how confident are you that the most important relationship is, that they have with Christ is, is there? How confident are you? Like, I know that my wife is a believer based on what I see. How confident are you that the person sitting next to you have surrendered their life to Christ? In fact, why don't you ask the person next to you, have you surrendered your life to Christ? Go ahead and ask the question. And wait for a response. Wait for a response. See, Paul goes into the synagogue and he reasoned with them. The Greek word for reason in the original New Testament language is dialogos. This is where we get our English word, word dialogue. So Paul dialogues with them in the synagogue. So he met them where they were. You know, so he reasoned with them, asking questions. It's, you know, just, and as they asked questions, he interacted with them. You know, so he wasn't having debates. He's having dialogue. So verse 2 tells us that he reasoned with them from the standpoint of the Jewish scriptures. Uh, it, Paul says, I'm going to meet you 
in your context. I'm going to reason with you through your scriptures. We call that contextualization. In other words, don't talk about basketball while I'm watching the football game. Right? Um, you, know, you know, the world, you know, track and field is going on, and I was talking with, uh, with Adam. You know, we've been texting about the races and everything. And we're talking um, on Sunday, and someone just came in and just had the most random conversation. And we're looking at it like, uh, we're talking about hurdles and jumping over hurdles. You know, wrong setting. You know, so, so when you want to reach someone with Christ, you have to meet them in their setting. If it's basketball, talk about basketball and work your way in. That's what Paul did. So Paul started talking with them because he knew they understand the Old Testament language. He knew they understood Genesis through Malachi because it spoke about the Messiah. And so we know that Christ fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies. When you go back to verse 17, he reasoned with people in the synagogue, but it says he also reasoned with people outside the synagogue. If you look at verse 17 again, it says, therefore he reasoned there, but also and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So Paul was thinking, what about the people in the marketplace? The ones who were not Jewish or didn't understand Jewish scriptures. Because if they don't know Jewish history or if they don't know the Jewish law, then they can't understand anything about the Messiah. So Paul considers this um, an opportunity for him. This is a possibility of neglect if we see them in the marketplace and don't say anything. It's the same possibility of neglect that we have for the church. Being so comfortable doing church stuff, but neglecting the ones outside these walls. Being comfortable, you know, hearing or teaching a good sermon but neglect the responsibility of reaching the ones in the marketplace. See, we have become so inward focused that even when we explain our faith to non-church attenders, it's still through the lens of our religion. For example, when someone asks, well, what is grace? And we say what? Grace is God's unmerited favor. What does that mean? I mean, as if all these unchurched are supposed to know what unmerited favor means, right? Or we say, Jesus died for the atonement of your sins. What? But those who don't, you know, have the benefit of coming to church, they lack this understanding. If I asked uh, some of you to define some of these religious terms we often use, you probably wouldn't even know where to start. And yet, those are the words that we consider the foundation of our faith. Words like justification, sanctification, providence, and sovereignty. But how do you define these terms to people outside the church? What does sanctification mean? What does atonement mean? How do you define these terms to them? So these are the ones that's outside the wall. So Paul says, I'm going to identify with people inside, but also outside. And not just that, Acts 17 verse 2 says, as was his custom. So Paul intentionally reached out to those outside the synagogue. Now for the remainder of this teaching, 
I'll provide some lessons from this chapter um, so how we can interact with people about Jesus outside these walls, which is actually the title of my sermon. And I'll try to go through real quickly. Number one, we must intentionally dialogue with people who don't know Jesus. Seems very straightforward, right? Part of the problem is that we're debating with people who lack understanding. Paul reasoned with people inside and outside the synagogue. But for the ones outside the synagogue, Paul would translate the Jewish scripture and teach what God revealed through the Bible. So we can't be so focused on wanting to teach people inside the church when there are more than twice the number of people outside the church. See, God is not pleased with our selective process. Now, I was sharing uh, with the group on Wednesday um, this data from research. I love data. You guys know by now. And I will keep reminding you of these numbers because I want you to understand the importance of sharing Jesus. Amen? Some found word in the label. There goes the data guy. I'm okay with that. But 83,000 people in Berkeley have no religious affiliation, and the body of Christ should not neglect them. Emerge should not neglect them. Now, research shows that the average church size in America is 200, right? 200. Based on that research, we would need to plant 415 more churches just to accommodate those people in Berkeley. 415 more churches. So as you can see, we don't have enough churches. This is why I'm so focused on reaching unsafe people, because even if each and every one of you inside this room went and planted a church out there, we still wouldn't have met the number. It is possible to have this idea of wanting community for ourselves while simultaneously neglecting non-believers. We must choose to reach the ones outside these walls, the ones who need to be taught how and why Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That process begins with having dialogues with friends or people who don't know Jesus. We must be willing to get into the real world and open our mouths and say something. Jesus loves you. Matthew 28 tells us that as Christians, we don't have a choice but to share Jesus to unbelievers. The body of Christ won't effectively change our world by being inward focused. You can take that, write that, that point down if you need to. We won't be effective if we're inward focused. We, we want to become a church um, that is always thinking outside these four walls. Because what tends to happen is that we become this mature Christian when people walk through the doors. We're waiting to disciple people that we showed no effort or interest in reaching. Let me just sit right here and wait till they come to the door so I can tell them about Jesus. All the while, they were outside waiting for you to reach them. But now we're this mature Christian. Paul says, I didn't sit around in the synagogue having conversations. I went outside to the marketplace. He reasoned with people in the marketplace. He meets the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. 
Then he moves on and gets an audience with the most scholarly people, the men of Areopagus. This is a Greek word that means hill of Ares. So Ares was their Greek god of war. So it was one of two hills. So the higher hills, the Acropolis, is where he had the, the Parthenon. And then the smaller hill, hill of Ares. Now, here's the context. On the smaller hill, the elders of the city, they would meet and they would engage in philosophical discussions. They want to resolve, um, resolve their disputes. So they're all sitting there. These are all the smart guys sitting here to talk. Paul says, I've met with those in this synagogue. Now let me get with these audience, these smart guys. Verses 22 to 23. Then Paul stood in the midst of Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, therefore the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Notice how Paul appeals to the intellectual appetite of the crowd. The Greeks and Romans, as I mentioned before, had over 300 different gods. But they were so paranoid about offending any gods. So they're saying, just in the event we miss some other god, let's put to the unknown god. So like, let's cover all our bases. So Paul, he capitalized on this and said, let me help you understand who the true and living God is. So even the most scholarly intellectual people know that there's something or someone that's greater than themselves. Now, people might say the man upstairs or divine in intervention, but we know it's Jesus, right? God, it's so quiet, it's all right. So Paul uses the inscription to the unknown God as his opportunity to help them understand who the real God is. Here's why we have uh, these entry points. It's number two, that the average person genuinely desires to worship or connect with God. The average person. The lesson we learn from this missionary journey serves as a restatement of what Solomon told us in Ecclesiastes, and we did this. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also what? What did it say? He has put eternity in their hearts. So even people, you know, if they don't know it, they have an innate thing. They have to worship something because God put eternity in their hearts. And furthermore, Genesis 1 tells us that God created humanity in his image and likeness, and then he breathed his spirit into humanity. So there is this longing to connect and commune with God because of this creative process. So when someone doesn't know about Jesus, their unmet longing causes them to constantly fill it with something else. You know, maybe it's an addiction. Uh, maybe it's just, you know, loneliness. They fill it with something else because they, because they don't know what to do. So we have to share Christ with them. So they often medicate this, themselves with all these uncontrolled addictions because everyone is created in the image of, of God. So God gives us these unique opportunities to share his message to them. So we must help unbelievers realize that their souls can be satisfied by having a personal relationship with Jesus. 
the next principle, we see is that being religious does not qualify as being a follower of Jesus. Paul commends the, the, these guys uh, for their spiritual hunger. Verse 22, Paul said, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. See, all of us have some religious tendencies, all of us. For example, some of you will never eat your meal until you pray. Am I right? But when was the last time you reflected on why God needs to bless the meal you're praying about? See, we just like, let's bless the meal. But have you ever reflected on why he should bless this meal? Our text says being religious doesn't mean you've been redeemed. And what I mean by being redeemed is that we can, re is that we can receive the forgiveness of sins because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. But all these religious stuff that we do, attending church programs, it doesn't suggest a relationship with Jesus. You must put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So we can have a lot of people devoted to the idea of Jesus but lack a relationship with him because they haven't accepted his forgiveness. So Paul commends them for being religious, but he says you have to go beyond that. Number four, there is always an opportunity to connect people with Jesus. We have opportunities through shared interests, sports, school, work, food, all these are entry points that we can use to connect people to Jesus. So Paul reasoned with them from the entry points of their cultural and spiritual interests. And then he related this to Jesus, to the unknown God. He says, he didn't say, by the way, as I was passing, I see how sinful you are with all these things. That's not what he said. He says, as I was passing, I realized that you are worshiping this unknown God. But I know who this unknown God is. See, we must intentionally seek entry points in our dialogue with unbelievers and make those conversations relatable to Jesus. You know, see someone at the park, they're playing, you can start playing, and, and as with them, you know, Frisbee or, people still play Frisbee, right? You play something at the park, or maybe volleyball. And, you know, spike the ball, the ball goes high. Oh, man, have you seen how God created the heavens? <laughs> Finding ways, entry points. You know, maybe someone is diagnosed with an illness. You know, we can share about the healing power of Jesus. Maybe someone is dealing with low self-esteem or anxiety. We can share that Jesus provides peace. These are all entry points. See, sometimes uh, people need to hear that life is filled with ups and downs. But Jesus is dependable and will never leave nor forsake us. Amen? Next is uh, repentance is the first step in developing a relationship with Jesus. Repentance means turning from sin, the things that don't please God, and trading those things for a relationship with him. So Paul says, I notice you have this 
unknown God. But I have a name for him. And he has a son, and his name is Jesus. And so Paul talks about Jesus, the resurrection, repentance, judgment, all in verses 30 to 31, Acts 17, 30 to 31. Truly, these times of ignorance got overlooked. In other words, you once said to this unknown God, but now I'm explaining to you so you're no longer ignorant. He says, truly these times of ignorance got overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, talking about Jesus, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul suggests there's not only an ignorance about God, but you can't just add Jesus at the end of everything you do and call it Christian. We must live according to God's design for our lives. Because one day we'll be judged for how we live now. And if you're not living according to God's requirements, I can't consciously say it's okay. And that Jesus understands. I can't. It's not okay. Sin is not okay. I can't encourage you to live however you feel without repentance. Living an unrepented life with Jesus and attending all these church services doesn't change the fact that you're living in sin. That's the fact. Now let me say this. None of us are perfect. And I want to also save you the headache. Don't waste your time and energy analyzing my life because I guarantee you before the week is over, I'm going to make a mistake. Because I'm human just like you, but for the grace of God. With Jesus, we have the assurance of eternal life when we live a life surrendered to him. But let me also say this to you, though. Don't waste time moping over your sin. Run to Jesus, and he will forgive you of your sins. See, so many times we're like, we made this, we're like, no, go to Jesus. Stop crying about the mistakes you've made and just go to Jesus and say, God, forgive me for I've sinned. If you ask for forgiveness, he will forgive you. He calls us to repent, and he wants us to accept his forgiveness. He's not calling us to live under this dark cloud because of our imperfections. He desires us to live a life of freedom that he provides. Amen? The last main point is that sharing Jesus doesn't guarantee the same response. Not everyone will accept the message of salvation. But some will. Acts 17.32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. Some mocked. But don't miss that others were intrigued by what they heard and desired to hear more. Tell me more about Jesus. Never stop sharing Jesus. It doesn't matter how you have the rejection. Never stop sharing Jesus because some will say, tell me more. Verse 33, 34. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men join him and believe. That's what we want. Some believe. 
So there's going to always be three responses, which mirrors what will happen in our lives. Some will mock and say, oh, that Jesus thing. Others might politely decline. No, thank you. I'm all set. But don't miss the fact that others might be intrigued and say, tell me more. They might ask, how can I start a relationship with Jesus? We can't save anyone, but we must do our part in sharing the hope that Jesus provides. It is God who converts the human soul, and he brings people into the saving knowledge and their relationship with him. So don't carry this weight of and pressure of feeling like it's your job to make someone accept Jesus. God does all the saving. Amen? I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. Now, one of the things that we've purposed for a very long time and we're going to always do, we know that there's always going to be those three people. Some might mock Jesus. Some might decline. But others will accept. So I want to give this opportunity to ask the question, is there anyone here today that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus? You're not a Christian. Okay, I see your hand. Now, do you want to accept Jesus today as Lord of Savior in your life? Is that a decision that you want to make today? You can slip your hand up and down and see. Jesus is the most important person in our lives, the most important relationship we need in our lives. We say it over and over and over again like a broken record. We're not perfect. We just keep running to Jesus. We mess up. We run to Jesus. We get on a good track and we're doing well for a week, a month, maybe a year. We mess up. We run to Jesus. It doesn't matter where you are in your life. Never stop running to Jesus. Keep running over and over and over again. The worship team is always sing the song about run to the Father. And again and again and again. And you mess up and you do well. And you run to the Father again. And then you share the gospel to someone else over there and you mess up, but you run to the Father again. You never stop running to him. That's the hope that we have in Jesus. Knowing that it doesn't matter how many times we mess up, if we run to the Father, He'll forgive us of our sins. So I want to pray for you if you don't have a relationship with Jesus right now. Lord, we're just thankful that you've brought us here to hear your word. Um, you know the heart of each one of us that's here today. And you've seen those who decided to accept you in their hearts knowing that they're not perfect but they also know that God that we're not perfect so I pray God that in this moment that you will just allow them to receive forgiveness freely knowing that there's a, group, a body of believers here that, that's walking this journey with them I pray God that today will be a brand new day for them to walk in victory with you, Lord God. 
Lord, I also pray, God, for all of us here today. We've heard your word, God, and I pray, God, that our hearts uh, were challenged, God, to knowing that we need to go outside these walls and not just waiting for people to walk in through these doors, but being intentional in sharing the hope that you provide, God. I pray, God, that we all will live with this understanding that we have hope because of you. Move in and through our lives today, God. And we just love you. We just give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.